So the other day, I go to Taco Bell, and the cashier hands me my food and says, I am become death, destroyer of toilets. and welcome back to another episode of Post Credits with Gil Garcia. This is our second episode of this very special week, and I am so excited to be here to talk to you about Christopher Nolan's newest film. Oppenheimer is only the second film he's ever directed that is not distributed by Warner Brothers, but instead Universal Studios. In today's episode, I'll give you my complete review of the film, a breakdown of its critical and commercial response, as well as my own personal Christopher Nolan film rankings. I can't wait to get into this, guys. Does Oppenheimer hold up to the rest of Nolan's great filmography? It's time we find out with Act One. Oppenheimer is the story of American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb. It's based on the novel American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. The movie stars Cillian Murphy as our titular Oppenheimer, Robert Downey Jr. as Louis Strauss, Emily Blunt as Kitty Oppenheimer, Tom Conti as Einstein, Jason Clarke, Matt Damon, Josh Hartnett, the list goes on and on and on. And in a way, this film feels like the biggest excuse for Hollywood to come together and work with Christopher Nolan. <laughs> there are so many cameos and so many what-the-fuck people that, that show up in this film. It's crazy. Oppenheimer was not only my most anticipated film of the year because of the subject material, but because those of you who know me know I love Christopher Nolan. And today I'm going to tell you my connection with Nolan and how this film stacks up long before he had his reputation as a master craftsman of the big budget Hollywood blockbuster. I literally studied and wrote papers about his films in college around the time I was going to college. The dark Knight had just premiered. We also had the prestige around that time and everyone was talking about Christopher Nolan, about uh, Heath Ledger's Joker um, and just overall his arrival onto the filmmaking scene. And for a school project, I had to edit Memento in chronological order. It was challenging, but it made me understand the genius of his work and how well he does with non-linear storytelling. And Oppenheimer follows the same suit. It's cut between different time frames of Robert Oppenheimer's life, and it's done in such a way that's far more intelligent and way out of Christopher Nolan's, like, his ballpark that we've ever seen of him. And I'm just taken aback from this. Now, from then on, after The Dark Knight and Memento and The Prestige, we got films like Interstellar, The Dark Knight Rises, Tenet, and Dunkirk. But ultimately, I would be remiss to talk about my favorite Christopher Nolan film of all time, Inception. Inception holds a very personal and sentimental part of my adult life. Um, I attach myself to that film personally, professionally, emotionally. I mean, I, I even have a replica totem that Cobb spins at the end of the film in my tableside drawer right here. I, I love Inception so much. And that kind of 
gives you a leaning to my rankings that I will be going on later on in this episode. But suffice it to say, this movie had some really big shoes to fill. Shoes that Tenet kind of fell dramatically short of. Was it the pandemic that hurt my opinion of that film, or was it his least palatable outing? It's kind of a bit of both. But from the poor sound mixing to the extremely convoluted plot, Tenet was an extremely cool visual effects showcase, but was a little bit too mind-bendy for its own good. With Tenet kind of souring Christopher Nolan's development process with Warner Brothers, that brings us to Oppenheimer, and the first time he's actually working with another studio besides uh, Warner Brothers. It also soured a lot of people's opinions about his filmmaking, finding him kind of cliche and, and noticing the very tropes that he brings to the table when he comes to his filmmaking. Does Oppenheimer go past those tropes? Does it live on its own accord? Is this the magnum opus that everyone is making it out to be? Is Oppenheimer Christopher Nolan's best film to date? I guess it's time for us to find out with Act 2, my film review. All right, guys, I'm just going to cut straight to the chase. Oppenheimer is a masterpiece. (laughs) I I don't know any other way to say it. Just right off the top of the bat. I know I normally give my rankings at the end of my review at the end of act two, but I'm just going to give it right here. This is the five out of five for me. Five out of five atoms, whatever we want to grade the scale this week. It feels like unlike anything Christopher Nolan has ever directed before. Some people will say that's to the detriment of this film. Some people will say that is an incredible strength of this film. I think it's a strength. Christopher Nolan, like I said, has fallen into some tropes that a lot of people tend to meme online. Um, Especially with Tenet, with the unnamed protagonist and stuff. This movie is very character driven unlike you know tenet and some people could say inception's not very character driven i disagree but in a way i do kind of see some of their points but this movie is first and foremost a character driven story it does have some big action set pieces but it's not the main crux of the film it's not reliant on those big action set pieces that he's known for instead narrows itself down into a more personal film that's all about the narrative and the political intrigue and the fallout of what happened with the Manhattan Project and the development of the nuclear bomb and the hydrogen bomb. Where people were coming into this film expecting the biggest explosion they possibly could see in IMAX, they are now walking away with like what's a heart-pumping game of political chess over the soul of the United States of America and J. Robert Oppenheimer himself. The movie is highlighted by standout performances by lead actors Cillian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Robert Downey Jr., all of which deserve every single Academy Award that is nominated and thrown at them. This film is a tour de force in terms of performances. You'll never see stronger performances in a Christopher Nolan film than this. Another thing that I really enjoyed about this movie, the pacing. For a movie that's so dialogue-driven and so heavy on its exposition and the political maneuverings, the pacing of the film is very sharp. This movie has a lot of plot threads and time periods to bounce between, but it keeps the film engaging and kinetic when it cuts between the time periods. And what Nolan does with the black and white filmography here, along with the color filmography, it makes it easy for people to follow when it is cutting back 
and forth between these time frames. And not a single minute of this three hour runtime is wasted here. This is phenomenal work. <laughs> I, I, I can't stop gushing about it. I also have to talk about the sound design. A lot of things people are complaining about when it comes to Christopher Nolan films is the way that his movies have sounded recently. Dating back to The Dark Knight Rises, I remember going to the IMAX screening of Ghost Protocol Mission Impossible and seeing that first opening 10-minute scene of Bane crashing the plane in the opening of The Dark Knight Rises. And I can tell you, no one in the theater knew what the fuck Tom Hardy was saying in that film. His dialogue was so muffled and drowned out by the diegetic uh, sounds of the engine and the music from Hans Zimmer. It was kind of hard to follow what the hell he was saying, especially because he was wearing the mask. Christopher Nolan cleaned it up in post, made it a little bit more palatable, but it overall sounded like ADR as opposed to diegetic noise coming out of the characters. Because simply put, diegetic noise coming out of Tom Hardy's mouth while he's wearing a mask, would not have sounded good no matter how you would have put it. And then we go to Tenet. Also, another movie where a lot of people are wearing masks. These guys are in, you know, gas masks and they're in uh, oxygen masks. And the dialogue tends to get muffled by the non-diegetic editing of their voices. And in some parts, it's really hard to hear because of their heavy breathing. But I can honestly say with this film, the sound design is much better. It's cleaner, easier to hear people, and the dialogue is what you hang on to through most parts in this movie, um, and it's much better than uh, Tenet and Interstellar in that respect. There's not really a lot of negatives that I saw from this film. One of the biggest drawn criticisms that you guys have probably heard online is that you do not see when the big thing happens. You don't get to see, like the people in the street when the thing happens. But that's not the point. The point of this movie is not to glorify the use of the atomic bomb. It's about the moral fallout of using it. I I don't really understand the methodology and the mentality of people that want to see charred children and, you know, melting corpses in the street of Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki. So I can't really relate on that level. I mean, yes, it would have made an impact visually, but I think the film does do its job in some pieces in giving you the effects of how tragic this whole situation was, as opposed to just beating it over your head and showing you some disgusting imagery. You know, Nolan does the intelligent thing, opts to showcase the damage through the actions of the characters on the screen. And that, to me, is the real separator here. It could have gone really dark and showed all that, but I like the restraint. I really did like the Trinity test, too, which is a beautiful scene in and of itself. Would I put it up there with the black hole scene in Interstellar? Maybe not, but it is visually really cool to see. And the noise that comes out after it is just, it will shock you out of your chair. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't really get that. Now, people are also saying that the bomb that was filmed was also underwhelming. I don't think so. I think this is spectacular. It isn't the biggest bomb ever recorded on screen. I think that title still belongs to Spectre. But this is a very extremely awesome use of it, especially in a movie that's so subdued and with its political uh, tones and stuff like that. 
Would I watch this movie again? Absolutely. I actually was planning on watching it the other day for the second time, but I just had too many things on my plate. I, I couldn't make it out to go see it again, but I will see it again a second time before it runs its course in the theatrical uh, release. And I'm definitely going to buy this movie on 4K Blu-ray. That's for sure. So that brings us to my Christopher Nolan rankings. Now that you've heard me gush about Oppenheimer and what I loved about the film, it's time for me to break down my favorite Nolan films of all time. Let's start from the bottom, his worst film. I think his worst film is his first film, Following. It sets the groundwork for the nonlinear chronological editing of Memento. It's not very engaging. The characters are very cold. It's all done in black and white. It's it's a fine starter film. Don't get me wrong, but it's not my favorite. Second to last is Insomnia. Now, Insomnia is kind of interesting because Christopher Nolan got to work with Robin Williams. Just think of that. The, the, the pure genius of seeing Robin Williams and Christopher Nolan share a set together. That blows my mind. The film itself puts Robin Williams in the antagonist role, which is also another interesting tidbit at the time. Because at the time, Robin Williams was famous for Jumanji and Flubber and all these children's films. And to see him as a serial killer was really fucking cool. With that being said, he also got to work with um, Al Pacino in the film. But I don't think it's a a very memorable film. I think it's interesting. I think it's uh, fascinating. Definitely a more subdued film. But Insomnia is second to last. I I didn't enjoy Insomnia as much as I thought I would. Third to last, Tenet. Tenet was the most recent Christopher Nolan film prior to Oppenheimer. And Tenet had a lot of issues both narratively and executionally. The sound design was pretty poor. The story was hard to follow, but I got to give him credit. Some of the special effects in there were really fucking cool, Uh, but that's not enough for me to say that it's a memorable or favorable film in his filmography. I think it's just fine. Next up, we have the Dark Knight Rises. Dark Knight Rises is kind of a divisive film. I think it does end the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight saga pretty well. But overall, it was a bit of a disappointment. There are some very obvious flaws with that film. Plot holes. (laughs) Ridiculous character deaths. um, Talia (coughs) and uh, Bane in particular. I do like some of the action set pieces. Bane blowing up Heinz Field and so on and so forth. But overall, the movie is, is fine. I did get choked up at the end just because knowing that it was Christopher Nolan's final Batman movie. But overall, it is weak. It is weaker than um, Batman Begins in the Dark Knight. And uh, especially coming off of Heath Ledger's Joker, The Dark Knight Rises was kind of like a a 7 out of 10 for me. Next up, we just talked about it, Batman Begins. Batman Begins could be so much higher, but I love the films above it so much more. Um, Batman Begins is the start of Christopher Nolan's Batman universe. It's grounded, it's gritty, it's unlike anything we've seen from Batman before, and it redeems the character from being just nipples on the Batsuit, this crazy Joel Schumacher character cartoon that we've come to know of him from George Clooney and Val Kilmer. Batman Begins gives us 
Christian Bale in the most grounded and gripping and best version of Bruce Wayne that we've seen on film. Some people will argue that that was Michael Keaton's Batman, but I think that that's Christian Bale. I think Christian Bale's version of Bruce Wayne is a lot more down to earth, a lot more everyman than Michael Keaton's. You get to see more of the emotional backstory behind him and his motivations and his relationship with Michael Caine and Alfred is fantastic in those films. Batman Begins lays the groundwork and I love it for that. Now is as good of a time as any for Dunkirk, the picture that gave Christopher Nolan his first Best Director Oscar nomination. Dunkirk was brilliant in its subversive storytelling of the near calamity on the shores of France. Dunkirk was told through the perspective of three different characters, all culminating in a triumphantly beautiful recreation. It's supremely underrated and gets better with each repeat viewing. Mark Rylance was also fantastic in this movie. Another underrated Nolan film, The Prestige. Lost in the success of The Illusionist starring Edward Norton, The Prestige is a gripping cautionary tale about two betting magicians as they attempt to sabotage each other for their own gain. What stood out to me with The Prestige is Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale's performances. The pendulum swings between each as the protagonist of the story, wildly as their game gets more dangerous. With an amazing plot twist and cool visual effects, The Prestige should be known forever as being better than The Illusionist. Next up, Interstellar. Uh, This is a lot of people's favorite film of Christopher Nolan. I think Interstellar is beautiful. I love every single sequence that has to deal with them outside of Earth. Um, The black hole sequence is a standout. The docking scene. Oh, my God. Hans Zimmer's score. Incredible. Heart pumping. Beautiful and haunting. Interstellar is a, a magnificent film. But the reason why it's lower on my list than the others is because it just does have those plot weaknesses it does kind of go off the rails by the end i mean (laughs) by the end of the film spoiler alert we find out that matthew mcconaughey's character is stuck in a bookcase (laughs) who would have had that on their betting list going into the film (laughs) but yes interstellar one of my favorites i love this film but it's not the best in my opinion next up we have memento Memento is a film that I mentioned was what I worked on when I was in film school. I had to edit it chronologically and seeing the way that the movie works where it's reverse chronological. It's telling the story going forward while going backwards, but giving the audience the same feeling short term memory loss that Guy Pierce's character has is fascinating. It's perfect. It represents itself And almost becomes a character in and of itself. It puts us directly in the same vein as Guy Pearce's character. And that's why I love Memento. It was such a mind fuck watching that movie the first time. But when you finally get it and you understand what is going on with the story. It's it's fantastic. It's it's absolutely mind blowing. One of my favorites of all time. And now the top three. I mean you guys can kind of guess what these top three um, films are. But I'm going to go with number three being Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is my third favorite Christopher Nolan film. And it's because this film is so heavy in its messaging and the way that it's crafted. I love it. It's it's a masterpiece. It's something that I'm going to rewatch over time and I'm going to appreciate even more. Especially because of how amazing the performances are from Killian Murphy and Robert Downey Jr. And of course my second favorite Christopher Nolan film is The Dark Knight. 
we all kind of saw this coming. The Dark Knight is the reason why the Academy Awards expanded the Best Picture nominations from five films to ten films. It was snubbed of the Best Picture nomination. It was also snubbed of Best Director. Of course, you have Heath Ledger winning the Best Supporting Actor Oscar posthumously. Say what you will about Avengers Endgame. I think The Dark Knight is the best comic book movie of all time, hands down. And of course, number one, Inception. As I mentioned in the past, I have a very sentimental attachment to Inception. It represents a lot of how I felt as a kid and a young adult growing up, having to go through film school and a lot of personal uh, triumphs and, and heartbreak that I had to go through. And I'll always hold Inception dear. And that is my personal ranking of my Nolan films. Let me know in the comments or let me know when you guys listen to this on my Instagram, on my social media, what you guys think and what your personal ranking is of Christopher Nolan's films. Oppenheimer for me is number three. Now, with that being said, I mentioned before Oppenheimer gets five out of five. It is close to perfection and will, of course, be in the conversation when it comes to the Academy Awards. Now, moving forward, let's move on to Act 3. Alright, with Act 3, I like to go over the reception, the budget, and the filmmaking factoids pertaining to the films that we talk about. And here we're talking about Oppenheimer's Weekend going head-to-head with Barbie. Now, Barbie and Oppenheimer combined to make the fourth best box office weekend of all time in the summer, with Barbie earning $162 million and Oppenheimer earning $83 million on its opening weekend. Well, both of them beating their projections by far, which means Barbenheimer is a real revelation for filmgoers. Barbenheimer is proving that audiences want to watch films from directors they trust. They want to be presented new and unique ideas that they've never seen before. And I love it. I I liked both films this weekend, but Oppenheimer for me is the clear favorite of the two. This was the third best opening weekend of Christopher Nolan's career. Of course, he wasn't able to top The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, of course. And critically, This movie is scoring big with both critics and audiences. Critics give it a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, while audiences are also dead split with 94% uh, approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Fun fact, this weekend, both Barbie and Oppenheimer scored A cinema scores from audiences that were polled over the opening weekend. The first time that that's ever happened, which is awesome to see. Let's go into some more filmmaking factoids. So in order to film the black and white sequences, Kodak developed the first ever black and white film stock for IMAX. It's pretty incredible if you think about it. Now that's never been done before. Also, this film does not feature Michael Caine. It's the first time he doesn't appear in a Christopher Nolan film since Insomnia. And honestly, I'm a bit sad. I'm pretty sure Nolan could have fit him in here, but I think Michael Caine had some travel issues. And, you know, uh, obviously he's a lot older, so he can go out to New Mexico. Speaking of New Mexico, the Los Alamos scenes were actually filmed in New Mexico. 
And Emily Blunt described it as summer camp in New Mexico. I can only imagine just chilling out with Emily Blunt and uh, Matt Damon and, um, you know, all the other celebrities that showed up there. That had to have been a lot of, of fun. And from what Christopher Nolan was saying, the entire Trinity test scene was filmed without using CGI. Just think about that. That's pretty amazing. When, Everyone was so quick to jump onto the CGI bandwagon back in the early 2000s. I feel like moviegoers and films are coming back around and are trying to shoot everything in-house practically. Um, And you love to see it. The more practical a film is, the more I'm going to love it. So, once again, if you've seen Oppenheimer, stay after my outro song for the spoiler review. If you've not, I hope that you get the opportunity to watch it in the theaters in the biggest screen possible. So you could either pause the episode or join me next week for another special episode. I'm not going to say what next week's episode is going to be, but I will give you a hint. Now don't close your eyes and don't try to hide or a silly spook may sit by your side. So I'm pretty sure you know what that is, but if you don't, I won't spoil it. So once again, thank you guys for listening to Post Credits with Gil Garcia. And as always... Go watch a movie. This is a spoiler alert. This is a spoiler alert. All right, I'm going to be straight up about this. I don't know what the fuck people are thinking about wanting to see the nuking of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. It gets the point across in the film just how tragic and how disturbing that scene is when Oppenheimer hears the news that his work has been used. The whole point of the film is that he's developing these weapons as a deterrent for war, and instead the United States uses it as an act of war, as the definitive act of war, to establish power across the planet. And to see Killian Murphy's eyes just kind of emote the the overall grief and guilt that came with what he just developed, it's heartbreaking, and it's hands down the best work of Killian Murphy's career. With that being said, the United States is completely antagonistic here. And one of the biggest high points of the movie it comes from one of the cameos that I saw. Gary Oldman as President Truman. It's kind of played off a little bit comedically, but it is very profound. In the scene, he tells Oppie that the world doesn't give a shit about him. That creating the bomb is not about Oppenheimer. They only remember the people who dropped it. And for Truman, that person is him. The sentiment originally is kind of intended to appease Robert's conscience. But instead, it kind of sours his relationship with the president. He tells him, like, I feel like I have blood on my hands. (laughs) To which, and this is the funniest part of the movie, Truman just, like, kicks him out of the Oval Office and calls him a fucking crybaby. And it's, it's funny, but it also shows the brutality of President Truman at the time and the overall mindset that the country had to make to dropped the bomb on a country that was already surrendering in the war it it really does leave an impact of the morality of 
our president and the people in command when it comes to those big decisions. The big crux of the story, what did Oppenheimer say to turn Einstein against Strauss? The Strauss and Oppenheimer feud is majority of this film and it is gripping. Every scene with Robert Downey Jr. is fascinating. You often see Robert Downey Jr. play these roles where he is so sympathetic. He's the everyday man. He's so charismatic and and you love him for his eccentricities. But here he's a subdued, real piece of shit. And I, I never have seen a movie where I wanted to punch Robert Downey Jr. in the fucking face. But this movie does it. His personal vendetta against Oppenheimer ends up costing him a seat in Congress. But the the lengths that Strauss went to to turn public opinion against J. Robert Oppenheimer is fascinating. You know, he even tries to call him a communist, tries to get his... Um, security clearance revoked because he tries to say that his wife funded the communist party during the early stages of the cold war. That is a very dangerous thing to do, which also could have landed Oppenheimer in prison due to the severity of what was going on in the world at that time. His post bomb liberalism led people to believe that him being a pacifist meant that he sympathized with the Russian government who were watching this act against Japan as kind of like the kickstart to the Cold War. They were waiting to see what the United States was doing prior to them developing their own hydrogen bomb and atomic bombs. With Robert's pacifism, it really led people to believe that he was in cahoots with the Russian government. Hell, even one of his guys was a spy for the Russian government during this whole situation, and... Oppenheimer was completely oblivious to the whole thing. And sadly, that all led to Louis Strauss ruining Oppenheimer's public perception. And it did more damage to him than Oppenheimer did to turn the scientific community against Strauss. It's it's a fascinating game of chess between these two characters. And I believe both Robert Downey Jr. and, and Killian Murphy deserve their Academy Award nominations when they get them. And I think they should be taking the hardware home. This is their best work of their careers. And I loved watching every minute of them. Some of the other characters that come in, because there's a lot of people here. David Desmalkian, Matt Damon, Dane DeHaan, Josh Peck, Jack Quaid, Benny Safdie, Florence Pugh. Which brings up the next point. Everyone was talking about her nude scene and her sex scene with uh, Oppenheimer at the beginning of the film. And the ramifications of them playing the quote, I am become death destroyer of worlds during the middle of the sex scene it's an on-the-nose interpretation of oppenheimer destroying his marriage also which i took very on the nose and i i thought it was beautifully done and the relationship that oppenheimer had with gene tatlock it kind of strengthens his relationship with kitty by the end she even imagines the scene of oppenheimer being um unfaithful and having sex with a Gene Tatlock in front of her, um, but she still, by the end, remains fervently loyal to him, being his biggest supporter and ultimately being kind of the guiding voice into protecting him from being labeled as a Russian sympathist. She's the reason that he remains, as seen by the United States government, as a U.S. loyal citizen. And I think Emily Blunt also needs big credit here. Her scene where she's being interrogated by Roger Robb, Jason Clark's character, it is 
powerful and you guys know I love Emily Blunt and this role was amazing for her. She's already been known for being a great actress. I mean, hell, just look at the Quiet Place films. But here, she is phenomenal and she's going to get an Academy Award nomination for her role here. I think a strong contender to actually win it too. We also have cameos from Casey Affleck, Rami Malek too. <laughs> when I first saw Rami Malek on screen, I was like, what the fuck is he doing here? <laughs> but he plays a pivotal role by the end of this film. He is the person that stands up the most for Oppenheimer at the Strauss hearing. And it's because of what he presented to the court and why he believed that Strauss's personal vendetta against Oppenheimer is the reason why Strauss should not be elected into Congress. And that deciding vote ultimately leads to Strauss being denied his seat. It's fascinating, and <laughs> I kind of appreciate Rami Malek for that. I'm not a Rami Malek fan, but I love what he did here. He did his part, it was powerful, it was prophetic, and it got the point across, and you don't get a character actor like that to come out and just do a five and under for no reason. He was very important to the story. Going back to Strauss's denial, <laughs> I thought it was very interesting for them to name drop John F. Kennedy, implying that Strauss may have been involved with the assassination attempt on JFK. It's possible, and there's a lot of rumors and facts that actually kind of point to that. But that's for another discussion, and I love the way Nolan just like left it in there but didn't address it any further. It just kind of implied. I heard the audience during my screening just all go, ooh. <laughs> it was awesome. Let's talk about my favorite shots of the film. The finale, beautifully done. You got a great score being played overhead, some haunting shots of the Enola Gay, Oppenheimer sitting in the cockpit, and you see the bombs flying all over their head. Uh, Ludwig Gorenson, who did the music, did a fantastic job, uh, and the nuclear missiles are being launched from their silos across the globe. We also see a wide shot of the Earth like catching fire in the atmosphere. And in the end... We finally understand what Oppenheimer said to Einstein all those years ago. It wasn't about Strauss at all, but it was the moral implication that Oppenheimer accepts that he has given the entire world the tool to them to destroy themselves. It's a powerful message and one that I feel resonates with today's society. I've already gushed about this film a lot. I absolutely love it. I love the message about it. I love the way that it was crafted. It did not feel like a Christopher Nolan film. It felt more powerful and more impactful than anything he's ever done in his career. I can't wait to own it on 4K Blu-ray, and I can't wait to have conversations about this later on. That obviously is it, guys. Um, I wanted to make this episode a little bit more tighter. Obviously, doing two episodes in the week was a bit much for me. I had a lot of work to do writing this script and, and getting this episode out to you. We're going to return to our regular schedule every Monday doing a weekly episode. I already hinted at next week's episode, and I hope you guys uh, tune in for that. As always, you guys, uh, feel free to leave me a rating and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And once again, go watch a movie.